Okay, Erev Tov, we uh, are going to start this week's Parshas Emor, and we're going to deal with a very fundamental question that, that troubles many people when they come to this Parsha. So let's begin. This Parshas Emor deals with, beginning at least, with many halachas that are unique to Kohanim. And in the midst of these halachas, we are told, "Daber al Aaron lemor, speak to Aaron. Ish mizarachal ledorasam asher yabomum." Any uh, descendant of Aaron, Kohanim, who have a defect, lo yikrav lahakriv lechem lekav. He may he's not qualified to offer the food of his God. Meaning he cannot bring a korban. And we list the disqualifications. Some of them. A man is blind, lame, his limb is too short or too long, has a broken leg, broken arm, he's a hunchback, he's a dwarf, he has a growth in his eye, he has a boil scar, scurvy, and other types of disqualifications that are there. And he is not allowed to bring it if he has this defect. And then the final Pasuk says, he may eat the food of his God, of the Most Holy, as well as of the Holy. So, what is the disturbing part of this section over here? Basically, your top line, your question. Yes, yes. Now, we know that the Torah is the first document in history that protested discrimination against the disabled, the crippled, the sick, and the infirm. Um, we uh, believe in chesed, believe in all kinds of kindness. Uh, the Torah, you know, made it into law that we have to give dignity to every human being. We say that a human is in the image of Hashem. That means everybody, no matter what that person's physical uh, state is what their color, what their race, what their strength. So in Yiddishkeit, there's no distinction between murdering a healthy, strong human being or a bedridden cripple. It's the same sin. That dignity of life is non-negotiable and uh, there's nothing to talk about. Okay, now, of course, this idea in the times that the Jews were forged as a nation were, was unheard of. Even progressive societies did not believe that. The Hellenists believed in infanticide and all the other disgusting things. Um, there was the part Spartan lifestyle that glorified torture. Um, Aristotle himself Argued that killing crippled children was essential to the functioning of society. He wrote, There must be a law that no imperfect or maimed child shall be brought up, and to avoid an excess in population, some children must be exposed, meaning thrown into the trash heap or left into the woods to die. For a limit must be fixed to the population of the state. You know that was the great, uh, the great thinkers of that time, and it wasn't until 1990 
that the United States made legislation for Americans with disabilities. And now it's, it's illegal to discriminate against people who have disabilities. No public building can be built without uh, things that are to take care of them. So how does the Torah, which is the, uh, uh, it's the first to really say that, you know, your, your physical needs are very important. Handsome looks. Seems like the Torah is contradicting itself by saying that a coin, he has a disability, is not allowed to serve. Now, we could understand that maybe some disabilities would make it impossible. If he was a quadriplegic, I could understand why he couldn't serve because then he could, couldn't do anything. Okay, but a lot of these do not um, uh, make him even difficult yeah. to do the service. Realize that only to, to, um, to the sacrifices or he couldn't serve at all. What other service yeah. was there? You bring Shack. Corbanos. You, but it's all part of, that's all the work in the temple. Can't do any any process of that at all. Does it have anything to He's do out. with the fact that the, even the Corbanos themselves have to be pure, uh, without blemish? Yeah, Corbanos also. Okay, Corbanos have to be pure, but there, the answer is very simple. What's the difference? Why does Corbanos... Why can a Corbin not be blemished? What's the lo- the simple logic of it? Here, take another chair. No, get sick. No, let's say an animal offering that's totally burnt. If you have an animal that's blind and you want to bring it as a burnt offering, you can't bring it. So what's the simple logic for that? Simple. Don't even think. You have to bring the best. You have to bring the best to God. What's this idea? You give God your garbage? Yeah. Well, that makes sense. There's a verse in the Navi that says, Would you bring this to your nobles? But that's the thing is, that's a selection. These people don't have a selection. They are what they are. If somebody is. Yes, yes, that's why it makes this a problem. Yeah, I know. So someone wants it as a connection. Doesn't seem to have such a connection over there. If anything, Judaism says it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It's what's on the inside. Are we really saying that, you know, you're, only if you really are completely healthy, you're going to be a leader amongst the Jewish people? Very difficult concept. Question number... You will not be able to, to perform if you health, if you only no, see but, one eyes or no, if you... No, but the truth eyes. is you can. You have to you be can. fit. No, he's pretty off. fit. Just and people can overcome a hunchback. A hunchback, the hunchback of Notre Dame was able to do a lot. But then you look at the hunchback, not what he's doing. Okay. Okay, so is, is, is that what we want to teach people? Could it be their focus in doing their job properly? Maybe they need to focus in more on themselves? Okay, let, let's talk about, uh, I'm, I'm not so involved in the secular workplace as much as you guys are. Okay, so think for a minute, okay? I don't need any names or anything, but do you see people with, you know, pretty decent handicaps and uh, that they're, and they're able to work well? Absolutely. What, what handicap, for example? That you know of, like direct? Blind. Blind? Yeah. And they could do a good job? Yeah. Okay? Depends what the job is, sure. Okay. 
All day. Any other handicaps you want to do? Wheelchair. Wheelchair. Okay, well, some of those I don't think you could really do in the base on the Dosh. It would be hard. What? No, I don't want names. I don't want names. I'm just saying the, the, the types of, hand, of handicaps. I guess you don't know any hunchbacks, do you? People who walk with a limp. You know, one leg is a little bit longer than the other. or. I know you know somebody, and he's much Just because you're calling it perfect. He's an excellent rabbi, a speaker, and he runs a congregation as a family. Okay, all right. So this is one issue we have to talk about. And the second question is, it seems to have a contradiction. Because we said at the end of the first source over there, but yet he's able to eat korbanos. It says, his God's food from the most holy and from the holy ones he can eat. Now, if you're holy enough to eat, and that's a privilege that excludes many of the holiest and most righteous Jews can't eat certain things that go on him. So if he's, not, if he's not a coin, so why are they holy enough to serve? So Paul, you may know some of the answers because I'm using some of one of our classes here. Yes. Okay, anyway, so that's a second question. Either one way or the other way. Okay, now we're going to go jump all the way to the end of the part. So then we discuss all these laws of Akohan, and that's one section. Then in the middle we discuss all the Jewish holidays. And then we discuss the other things. And then we end the parsha with source number two. It says, Vayetze ben ishi Yisraelis, v'hu ben ish mitzri There came out among the Jews a man whose mother was Jewish and whose father was an Egyptian. And a fight broke out in the camp between the half-Israelite and a certain Israelite. Okay, there was this Jew who who had a Jewish mother and a non, an Egyptian father, and he has a fight. And then what happens is this fellow, he curses out God, and they bring him to Moshe, and they want to know what to do with him. Okay. And ultimately, they say anyone who curses out God gets the death penalty. Now, the question is, what in the world is this story doing here? <laughs> it's Parshas Emor. Parshas Emor, the first chunk is all about Kohanim and the special laws they have. Second part, all about the holidays. And now, a story of this fellow who is upset, he's angry, he curses out God, and we kill him. So, the first question is, it doesn't seem to fit at all into the whole Parsha scheme. Number two, when did this event happen? This event happened after the story with Korach that took place much later and would therefore belong in Sefer Bamidbor. And why did it take place with the Korach story? Because we know that at the final showdown between Korach and Moshe, Korach and his, um, his uh, what do you call it, well, colleagues specifically Dawson and Aviram, and their entire families got swallowed up. Now, there's a PS to that story. Dawson and Aviram and all their kids got swallowed up, except for one. Grandson. 
one of their sons did not get killed. We're not talking about Korach's sons who did tshuva. We're talking about the son of Dosan. And everyone's wondering how come he didn't get killed. And they find out he wasn't his son. But rather, it was his wife's son because that was the only woman in the entire time in the Egyptian enslavement where one woman was violated. And was violated by an Egyptian. And that was exactly the story. If you remember when Moshe went out to see the Jews, he sees an Egyptian beating up on a Jew. And they killed him. It was the Egyptian was beating up on Dosan. Why? Because this Egyptian had eyes for the woman who's mentioned in this second source, Shlomis Bastivri. Okay, Shlomis Bastivri. She was a very um, congenial woman and she would speak to everybody and very innocently. And people knew that, you know, the Egyptians, she spoke to everybody. She's a nice, pleasant person. So the Egyptian was attracted to her. An Egyptian waited one morning for when her husband went out to work. And it's still, they went to work early before the sun came up. And he came back and she thought maybe it was her husband, but instead he took advantage of her. And then when the husband realized that, and the Egyptian realized that the husband realized it, so he wanted to kill the Jew. And Moshe saved his life. Okay, you with me? And then the next day, when that Jew was fighting with another Jew, and Moshe told him to break it up, he said, oh, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian. So that so nine months later, this woman had a kid. So what did they decide to do? Let's not tell anybody. We'll just say he's my kid. So we had all this from the Midrash? Is that where all this backstory Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all, this is all. So in other words, that was one case where a woman is violated against her will. The only time that happened, she has a kid and they'll all say, it's my kid. We'll raise him up as a Jew. This kid does not know. I mean, he is a Jew, but his father is a non-Jew. Yeah, well that, but that was way before Egypt. So, and now what happens is, so now when it was time to kill Korach and all his uh, friends, and they're going to kill their children. It wasn't his kid. So all of a sudden, they realize the story comes out. And now when the story comes out, we have a problem. Number one, this kid figures he's, he's, he's a son of a Jew from the tribe of Don. And that means he'll have a place in the camp. When they go to Israel, he'll have a piece of land. But then when they finds out that his father is an Egyptian... So they said, sorry, you can't be in this tribe of Dan because you don't go by the mother, you go by the father. And he, got, and he took the court case to Moshe. Moshe says, that's a fact. You lose the case. Loses the case, he gets very angry, he starts cursing out God. And then he is killed. So very interesting story. It has nothing to do with this Parsha. If anything, it belongs right after the story with Korach. That's a good place to put the story in. Somebody goes out and curses God. Very, so we once, uh, a number of years ago, gave a whole class based on the Mei Shiloach to put all the pieces together. And it's worthwhile to go back uh, to the website. It has that. But I want to just pick on one part of that, but develop a whole new theme and focus more on this aspect of dealing with people with disabilities. Oop, uh, I hope I did not. 
Okay, that's still working. Okay, I don't want to lose the recording here. So I'm going to give you three primary answers to this that will get progressively better. <laughs> okay, and uh, so that, but the, so let's start with the disabilities. Let's start with the disabilities. So if you look, I believe you have in source number three, the Sefer Hachinuch in Mitzvah 275 discusses this law. So we'll just read the whole thing. It's from the roots of the commandment that it is since most activities are pe of people are pleasing to the hearts of their observers based on the importance of the ones doing them. As when a person appears important and of good deeds, he will find favor and appreciation in all that he does in the eyes of those who see him. And if he is the opposite of this, meaning of lowly form and having unusual limbs, and if his actions are not straight, his actions will not be so pleasing to the heart of those who see him. It is therefore truly fitting that the messenger upon whom atonement depends be a man of favor, of nice form and nice appearance, and pleasing in all his ways so that the thoughts of people will attach themselves to him. Aside from this, it is possible that there is in the perfection of his form a hint to concepts through which the thoughts of a person about them will purify his soul and be elevated. And therefore it's not fitting in any way for there to be anything unusual in any of his forms lest the soul of the thinker be scattered due to the anomaly and he be moved from the purpose. So what the Sefer HaChinuch is saying, he's saying the problem isn't with the Kohen who is disabled, the problem is with the, the, the community upon whom he is serving. In other words, you know, human beings are influenced by what they see. That's a reality. And I would imagine if there's a kiddish and there's a person who looks very prominent and is handsome or good looking and very, you know, got a lot of qualities, would gravitate to that person as opposed to a person who is very much the opposite. Okay, and we can't legislate, you know, who you want to be friends with. Okay, and, you know, it could be if you uh, are going to choose a doctor, for example, some, well, people choose for presidents, people who are better looking than others, whether for better or for worse. That's why Gavin Newsom thinks he'll be president because he has a great hairdo. Okay, but uh, but the truth is, people are influenced by the people that they see, and it's more likely people will be influenced by people that are good-looking, handsome, healthy. They just carry themselves in a dignified way. If it's right or not, it doesn't matter. But what are we looking for? We're looking for a Jew who has either done a sin and requires atonement or a Jew who needs inspiration to get closer to God. And you don't want things that are, he will lose focus on by looking at a person. Now, I, you know, um, it is common, although, although it's not appropriate, but I'm sure the first time when you were little and you saw a person with only one leg, you probably stared. And if you were really young, you'd say, hey, Ma, what's wrong with that guy? And you're just innocently saying it yeah. because you never see it. It's unusual. 
And what's going to happen is, you know, you know, I, I don't even know if nowadays, you know, we're, we're more accepting and tolerant and whatever words you want to use, but, you know, you still might be focused on that disability more than anything else. If somebody looks average, you can more focus on what's being dealt with than looking at the person. And therefore, what the rabbis are saying is as follows. Although, you're right, it doesn't really matter what you look like in Judaism. And you could be a cripple and this and that, but it's what's inside that really counts. But the problem is we're dealing with the public, and the public requires atonement. And for them to get atonement, they have to have confidence in their leaders, whether it's right or not. And, and or they'll focus on the whole, he's supposed to be doing tshuva, and now he sees a real abnormality that he hasn't seen before in his life. And the wife says, well, how was your trip to your slime? Boy, that coin looked weird. And that could just, all your energy is focused on looking how unusual that person is. And therefore, you know what, we just, and, you know, again, I'm, I don't know what, you know, there's laws and there's really what's in practice. So I imagine, you know, the front desk uh, secretary, receptionist, you probably don't want that person to look really ugly and really deformed and kinds of that because it doesn't exactly make the greatest first impression. I don't know what the laws are, and I know we should be better than that, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, you know, all wives wish their husbands to have receptionists who are ugly because they don't want them to have to worry about when they're away. But, but, it, but in terms of John Q. Public, it doesn't give off the best impression. So therefore, answer number one by the Chinuch is basically saying people will not be inspired by that person. They're not going to take him seriously. And also, they're going to be not focused on what they should be focusing and they'll focus on the abnormality. That is the Sefer Chinuch's interpretation. We're open to any comments and questions on that before we move on. Yes? Even though it's not listed here, Moshe had a speech impediment. Yes, Moshe had a speech impediment. That's why and he's people not gravitated to him. He's not a he wasn't a Kohen, but people still gravitated. In fact, he, he couldn't even function as a husband because people were gravitating to him so much. Okay, so that's a very interesting observation that really would seem to be a question. But yeah. That's what you were doing. And what would the answer to that be? But he wasn't a Kohen. Well, he wasn't a coin, but he still was a leader. He was still a leader. It wasn't a physical. It wasn't physical. No, no. He was no. If you were a coin, you couldn't have that. That would be a blemish. Because I mean, I don't. You know, he was like you know, when people have real heavy, you know, they can You know, that's that is a deficiency. And Moshe Rabbeinu had the worst type of speech impediment possible. He partnered with Aaron. Okay, so answer number one, that's a good first layer answer. He partnered with Aaron, and Aaron would be the speaker. Okay, but there's two more answers. He was healed at Sinai. Oh, he was healed at Sinai. So by the time it was to give the Torah, he did not have the impediment. And? I don't know, his, his actions spoke louder than his words. And he, I think true, true, but still he was lacking that... Uh, and he himself acknowledged it. But the answer is, God did not want anyone to make a mistake and think that the exodus was because Moshe was such a charismatic uh, character and they'll attribute the exodus partially to Moshe. Mm -hmm. they, 
in Bedafka, when Moshe went, things got worse. Yeah. And Bedafka, he really was not a convincing speaker and was not, until the Jews left, he was a Nebuch. So now when they're going to be redeemed, no one's for a minute going to think that Moshe had anything to do with this. And the Exodus was a unique experience that God wanted to know, it's me and nobody else. Nobody else. And at the time of the Exodus, there was nobody else to get credit for it. So that so to uh, dispel any notion that there was someone together with God, but when it was necessary for him to really lead the people, in Egypt he really wasn't leading the people. He was just the the puppet of Hashem, so to speak. But when they, but when they got the Torah, now he has to really be a leader, and now God had to miraculously heal him because then it would be a major problem. So that was a good question and three good answers to that. But at the end of the day, who is this answer satisfy? Who this answer will satisfy? Who? The, to our question, why can't the coin serve? Because of John Q. Public, who will this answer satisfy, and who will this answer not satisfy? The Kohanim will satisfy, satisfy the ones that have blemish. It'll satisfy the public. It'll satisfy the public, not the Kohanim. But not the Kohen who has it. Right? All of us are saying, yeah, I want a nice looking Kohen. I want to be able to say, he's my Kohen. It satisfies, uh, well, the public. You're, you're the only one not a Kohen. See, he could not surf. Why could he not surf? Just look glasses, at it. His glasses. His glasses. Yeah. Well, he can't. How well can you see without them? Pretty bad. Whatever. You've been framed. Okay, anyway, but uh, depending on how bad your vision would be. <laughs> I, if I was a con, I could, you know, could, could you pour the, the blood and be as precise and this, maybe with your vision not being so good? Maybe you couldn't. Anyway, but I'm just saying, so Steve would not like that answer. He'd say, well, everybody else is happy with the answer. Doesn't help Steve any. I go to Steve. Okay. <laughs> so that is answer number one. So let's go to another layer. And now we turn to Rev Hirsch, which I believe will be on your second page. Oh, I have another. Does everybody have? I have yeah. you, you want? I'm, I'm so, okay. Yeah, okay. Thank you. So Rev, Rev Hirsch, I, 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 I brought it down. It's, it's on the Chumash. But um, I'll just speak out the main thing. Um, and, well, you can go about, about six lines from the top, from the word it. You see the sentence that starts, it? Yeah, yeah it is not. So, afflicted. it is not the afflicted and the infirm, not the blind and the lame, the disfigured and crippled, the broken and the sick, for whom the Jewish altar is erected, so that weary, burdened humanity can drag itself up to it to find compassionate consolation or even miraculous healing. It is a life in its completeness, in its freshness and strength, which there is to gain consecration to an active life of God's serving deeds and thereby acquire the everlasting freshness of youth and unbroken forces of life. Let me explain what he is saying. Often religion is called the opiate of the masses. What does that mean? So let's think about this often, not always, but, and present company excluded, okay, but uh, why would many people turn to religion? Because their lives are a mess. 
Uh, let's say the person is a crippled. Well, you just heard what the Roman theologians would do with you, and they'd kill you. Well, where do you think you'll get a break? With religion. So what, what will be the idea of religion? Religion is for the crippled, the losers, the ones who can't make it in the world. And religion is not for successful people. Now, how are we going to know that? Well, let's see who the Kohen is. So if the Kohen is crippled and he starts talking about tshuva and humility and this and that, he says, yeah, of course, you loser. Of course, that suits you. But I'm a successful businessman. I can make a lot of things happen. I'm not impressed by what you have to say. Now, if you want to impress, especially if you want to impress, and that's why many of the Kirov institutions try to hire young, successful people, or you try to expose people to young, successful, who say, I'm successful, and I find religion to complete my already successful life. But if Remember, again, people view externals very important to them. Again, it's not fair. But I say, well, yeah, if the Kohan... So who's, who goes to Torah? People who aren't so smart. He didn't pass his MCATs. And he didn't pass his LSAT. But he was able to sit in yeshiva for 10 years. And he can be a rabbi because he couldn't do anything else. But that's not inspiring me. And for because of that, you know, I understand why you don't work on Shabbos, but may every Shabbos is worth $10 million, so there's no reason for me to keep Shabbos. So therefore, it's not a question so much of impressing with the good looks, but the, the other side is religion is not for losers. And that is why, why did Hashem have to heal? When the Jews left Egypt, they were all a bunch of cripples. The Egyptians had so mercilessly beaten them, there wasn't a Jew, wasn't a cripple. I mean, it was, you know, if you're there 10, 15 years, how many times you got lashed, how many times you got beaten? All kinds of things. So now, why did Hashem heal them right before they got the Torah Sinai? He says, you know what? Maybe you're only going to take the Torah because you're a bunch of losers. And yeah, so God can take care of you. That's not how I want to view the world. That you only come to God if you're if you're desperate. So God says this: I'll make you healed. You're healthy. Matter of fact, you could leave this desert right now and find a job somewhere in Canaan. And since you have a Jewish head, you'll probably be successful amongst the non-Jews. Now I want you to accept the Torah, although you don't quote unquote need the Torah to compensate for your disabilities. I want a wholesome acceptance of the Torah. Not because you can't do anything anyway. So it's good to have God take care of me because I can't take care of myself. That's not how Hashem wants Yiddishkeit to be looked at. And it's very good why Hirsch, who was the one who was going against the reform in Germany, you can understand why he would come up with such an interpretation. Because the reformers were going against what? Those who were from the ghetto. And the ghetto, quote unquote, in their eyes were the losers. They weren't educated, a bunch of losers. So Rav Hirsch, who was well-educated, well-groomed, and very sophisticated, and spoke a beautiful German, and he wrote his commentaries even in German. And secular people had to be impressed by him, and they had to take what he said seriously, even though he violently, virulently disagreed with him. So you can understand why he would say such a pshat that Yiddishkeit is for winners. And you can't have, quote-unquote, a loser being the one to guide you. 
and to be the role model. So that is also a very nice answer. But that answer will satisfy who and not satisfy who? It'll satisfy the aristocracy of the Jews. First answer maybe would, 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 would set, be good for the lower Jew, so to speak. <laughs> they look up. But now you want the aristocracy, so they're happy. Oh, we got a very good representative. But it still doesn't help the coin. So that leaves us back to square one. So to understand the uh, answer we want to really uh, come up uh, to walk away with over here is uh, it's, it's a piece of Torah said by one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, the Tzemach Tzedek, but really it was said in its core form earlier by um, the, um, the uh, Mei Shiloach, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, and his son. They talk about this idea a lot, and we, we got a few snippets here and there that we will share to explain. And between all that together, you'll understand this. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the answer first. I usually don't like to, but sometimes I'm going to just tell you the answer, but then we'll have to work our way to help you understand the answer. And the whole question that we've asked presupposes the following, that the crippled coin is excluded from serving in the Holy Temple. That, that's the whole question, is that premise. Why would God do that? The answer is the crippled coin was not excluded from serving in the temple. Rather, he was summoned and chosen to serve God elsewhere. And now we'll develop that one-line idea for the next half an hour for you to appreciate exactly what that means. But that is really the answer. And let's start with the story of Steve Jobs. Maybe Oliver Shulman, I don't know. <laughs> who is the founder and chairman of Apple. We all know who he is. But maybe some of you might not know this. Some of you may know this. In early 1955, Steve Jobs' biological mother uh, traveled to San Francisco. She was taking care of a kindly doctor who sheltered unwed mothers and delivered their babies and quietly arranged adoptions. So Steve was a product of an unwed mother, and in the 50s that was not such a cool thing. And she was adopted by Paul and Clara Jobs. So one day, as a seven-year-old, he's sitting on the lawn of his house. He's chatting about his adoption with a girl who lived across the street. And the girl innocently, but hurtfully, said, so does that mean your real parents didn't want you? And they did, that was an innocent question, but uh, lightning bolts went off in his head. And he goes running into the house crying. He wanted to know, is that true? That my biological parent threw me away? So this was the key to what the parents answered was the key to his success in life. And his, his adoptive parents says, no, you got to understand. They said, we specifically picked you out. And they said it again. They were very clear. We specifically wanted you. So he came to see himself not as an outcast by his biological parents, but 
as chosen by the parents who adopted him. Now, he could have viewed his life in two ways. He could have been a child abandoned by his parents or a child chosen by another man uh, and, and woman. And the way he would see his life would determine the type of life he would have. So, as they say, thank goodness his parents gave the, the right answer and the rest is history. The same holds true for our case as well, but we have to give another little introduction. And uh, another important principle in Judaism regarding perfection in Judaism. And the question is, what is or is there perfection in Judaism? So we have to understand the following yesod, which is very different than any other form of worship. And that is perfection in Judaism is never attributed to a particular place, person, or thing. Which means there's no perfect model in Judaism. You don't say, if I do this and this and this and this, now I'm a perfect Jew. Not because perfection is impossible, but that's not where you're looking for perfection. What is, there is perfection in the Yiddishkeit, and we all can be perfect in our Yiddishkeit, as humanly possible. So how do we define perfection? Perfection is doing what God wants you to do. Being the way Hashem wants you to be, living the way Hashem wants you to live, Perfection means being in the place where God wants you to be. As they said about Rav Moshe of Kabrin, there was a particular Rebbe that when Hasidim would come, he would always ask the Hasidim, what is your Rebbe special in? He's going to hear. So some say, oh, my Rebbe is special in davening. He has kavana. My other Rebbe, he's special in learning. He can learn for six hours straight without losing track of what he's doing. So when a student of Rav Moshe Kabrin said, what's my Rebbe perfect at? He's perfect at the thing he's doing right then and there. Okay, which is really a great answer. Okay, now, if we worship or give special tribute to a perfect model in Yiddishkeit, that's a subtle form of idol worship. And that's why when Moshe came down from the mountain after the golden calf, where the Jews mistakenly thought that the calf would be their form of worship, he bedafka broke the tablets. Why? Because the Jews would mistakenly think that the tablets are the, are the, uh, are the perfect part of Yiddishkeit. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu broke the, the tablets because he understood that the Jews missed the point about monotheism. They were used to the old idol worship ways, and then they would attribute holiness to objects, to holy things, to holy people, to holy places. So Moshe smashed the holiest item in the world, such as the tablets, to teach them that there's only one barometer of perfection. And that's what? What God wants and where he wants it and when he wants it and nothing else. And your perfection would have been doing nothing when I didn't come down on time. You felt we were missing perfection. So it'd be the calf will be the perfection. Oh, the calf, now you came back, the tablets will be the perfection. Is that no such thing? Now with this, we can begin to answer all kinds of interesting questions that you may have as, for example, you must have heard this once in a while, why are women treated in your synagogue as second-class citizens? Why must they be behind a, a mechitza? Why aren't they given aliyah to the Torah? Why can't they put on talus and tefillin? Why can't they wear a kippah? So the best answer, you don't have to get into all the things, you know, Hashem, it's, for the, it's just it's very simple. 
You say, since when do we worship an aliyah? Since when do we worship a keeper? Since when do we worship tefillin? Since when do these items become important and desirable? It's only what Hashem wants. And what Hashem wants me to do is holy. And what God does not want me to do is unholy. Is eating a cracker a mitzvah? Only on the first night of Pesach. That's all. If you eat it before sunset, it's an Avera. Right? Blowing a horn is only a mitzvah in Rosh Hashanah. Because that's what God wants. Through that you connect to Hashem. Blowing a shofar on Hanukkah is meaningless. The shofar doesn't mean anything. The tefillin don't mean anything. It's God's will. What does God want from me at this time, place, and situation? That's what counts in Yiddishkeit. And therefore, we do not attach any divine significance to anything, only to Hashem Himself. If Hashem wants it, it's great. If not, forget it. We don't sanctify anything in and of itself. Now, what would you say about eating pork? Well, if I bring up pork right in the room now with an apple in it and everything, you go, Ugh! you'd be grossed out. Could it ever be a mitzvah to eat pork? Only to, Only to save your life. And all of a sudden, pork is a beautiful thing. Pork, pork is a mitzvah object. If you're starving and the only thing you can eat is pork, and if you don't eat the pork, you die. Right? You know, um, going to shul is a great mitzvah. And for those who took the pandemic seriously, I'm not taking sides on here. But there are those who would suggest going to shul during the pandemic was an avera. If the science was true, they'd be right, but we found that they were liars the whole time. So that was not, not true. The people, but the science. The science were liars, okay? And it wasn't necessary, but we only knew that after the fact. But if, if it really would be, then yeah, it would be a sin to go to shul, okay? So now let's see what it means to serve in the temple as a Kohen. Now that sounds awesome. Like, what could be better than that? Your mom is serving God in the temple. But it's not. You know why? The only reason it's valuable is because Hashem wants me to do it. The temple itself has no intrinsic holiness as a physical temple. What makes it holy? It's God's will that makes it holy. We don't attribute a special value to any temple, no matter how beautiful is it. And the service, as much pageantry that might be there, there's nothing special about it. It's only special because God wants it. And the moment God says, I don't want it, it's not for you. And if you do it, it's not holy. And if anything, it's ineffective and it's meaningless. So religion, Yiddishkeit is not to fit us into pre-existing models of what we defined as perfect and beautiful. That's idolatry. And unfortunately, there are many Jews who don't realize that they really are worshiping idols. It never was about beautiful synagogues. Now, of course, we're not to say we don't want to have beautiful synagogues, but the beautiful synagogue doesn't make it holy. Especially if you have a beautiful synagogue and people are talking in the shul. It's not, it's not a holy place. That's all there is to it, right? So, uh, and a lot of us look at Judaism as like what looks good. 
You know, it looks good. If God wants you to have an aliyah, that's wonderful. If not, the aliyah is worthless. So it's not like the women are treated second class. But what God is saying is, I have better jobs for you to do. That's what Hashem is saying. Going to synagogue is a job for men. And if you do that, you're wasting your time. And any man who thinks he wants to have babies is also a fool. And if he thinks he's going to be as nurturing as a mother, is also foolish uh, uh, 99.9% of the time. He says, I want to be able to do this. What for? Because well, it's, it's, no, it's only from those that I want to do that. So that, that's a critical point. So, so now let's go back to our question. We were saying, well, why are we discriminating against a crippled Kohen by telling him that uh, he can't do the service? So you know what that's like asking? It's like asking uh, Paul, why did you marry Andrea and not another lady? Weren't you discriminating against the other lady? <laughs> no, I'm not discriminating against the other ladies, but they're not meant to be with me and I'm not meant to be with them. And my wife didn't discriminate against other men. They're not meant to be with her. They have their own uh, uh, people to marry, right? Marriage is only holy when it's with the right person. So serving in the base of Migdash is only holy when it's being served by the right person. So who decided that, that serving in the temple is good, moral, and holy, and wonderful? Maybe it's meaningless and valueless. Maybe it's a waste of time and a waste of energy. The answer is because God wants it. That's when it's important. Because that's God's will. But if God says it's not for me, then it's nonsense. So there are Kohanim who God wants to serve in the temple and there are others that he does not want them to serve the temple. Not because they're excluded, not because they're abandoned, not because they have bad looks and rejected. It's because they were chosen for another mission. They have another destiny for their soul. You know, we're very fortunate if you're in the tech world that Steve Jobs did not become a painter. <laughs> Maybe his parents said, you know, I want him to be a painter. But that wasn't what his neshama wanted. We're fortunate Albert Einstein did not become a basketball player <laughs> and that Mozart did not go into real estate. Nothing against real estate, but it's not for Mozart. It'll be a waste of his time. Not that painting and basketball or real estate are not worthwhile vocations, but it's for other people and not for them. You need to know what you're good at. So as long as Hashem dwelt in the temple in Yerushalayim and you wanted to find Hashem, oh, temple was an important place. But when the temple is destroyed, then what happens? Is Yiddishkeit destroyed? The Goyim thought. So the Christians, you see, they have that Christian idea. They thought, must be the Jews are finished because they have no temple, they have no Israel. But then what happened? God said, there's other ways to serve me. And now when there's no temple, there's another ways to do this. So just like we wouldn't force a child who's not talented in one other area to be dafka to this, because the father is a seventh generation lawyer or rabbi or doctor, says this child must be this, that would not be tr true at all. 
So therefore, what we're saying is that this Kohen was not excluded. He was being given the privilege to do something that the other Kohanim could not do. And the question is, what is that? What is that? So, we have to understand that what was the real role of the Kohanim? The Kohanim were to be the bridge between Hashem and the Jewish people. Hashem is way up here. The average Jew is way down here. The Kohen is very holy, so he can take Hashem, so to speak, and make the Shidduch with the rest of us. That's a Kohen's job. They're chosen to be the link between heaven and earth, helping the Jews find their place. Now is the interesting part. Are all Jews cut from the same cloth? Okay. Would you say that every Jew um, loves to come to the West Manshul on a Shabbos morning at uh, 9.45 and hear the beautiful singing that goes on in the shul? No, They must. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, our, the people who come enjoy it, yeah. Yeah. and they, they wouldn't trade. The they wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. Of course. But there are other Jews who don't. In other words, existentially, there are Jews who make it to the temple, and there are Jews who don't. Now we're not talking geography. We're talking about there are Jews who relate to. There's a temple. There's holiness, there's spirituality. I want to have holiness. I'm challenged with this. The Yetzirah tempts me with things. I make mistakes. I need someone to help me because I want to be in that place. I want to be with that holiness. And guess what? We got Kohanim that are great at doing that job for you. Ah, here's the question. What about Jews who just aren't into spirituality? What about the Jew who just doesn't care to go to shul. It doesn't speak to him. And they're not anywhere near this idea of holiness. Who's going to reach out to them? It's got to be a coin, because the coin is the only one who is able to connect Hashem and the Jewish people. But if we got all the Kohanim who are working in the temple, there's nobody to reach out to those who are not making it to the temple. We're teachers, going. So therefore, God chose certain souls who are very deeply sensitive to all forms of handicaps in life. Outreach rabbi. But not just an outreach rabbi. No, no, no. You're missing the point. The point is the best outreach rabbi is the one with the handicaps. Really? Because the one with the handicaps can relate to the other ones who have the handicaps. There's, if you think about it, what is the greatest handicap that one could have? Is it missing a foot? Or is it that they can't control their anger? Let's say, this would be an interesting, you know that these games, these, uh, I don't know what they're called, these moral games or these things, if you have to pick between one or the other, if you pick to have a handicap of missing a foot, or an incurable, uncontrollable anger, which would you prefer? Okay, well, let's make it a little more challenging then. Let's see. Would you, would you rather have a scarred, ugly-looking face? 
but the most exquisite, the most, the most exquisitive midos, or you're like a movie star and you cannot control your anger. Well, which one would it be? What's the real, what's the real handicap? Right? So now who can deal with handicaps? Who are the people that work in jacks? Previous alcoholics. People who are previous alcoholics. Those are the only ones who can save the others. The guy who's never been an alcoholic, how are you going to help them? They can help maybe sober people not become alcoholics. Okay? Because they can show we have better things in life to do, and you haven't been hooked into that yet. But who can help the alcoholic? The one who was a reformed alcoholic, who still they always say, I'm still an alcoholic. And therefore, I still have a blemish. But those with the blemish can help those that have the blemish. Which now leads us to understanding a Gemara, which is in source number five, the Gemara in Hulin, not Huli, but Hulin. We know the famous story about the sun and the moon. And we know that there originally were two large luminaries, and the moon said, you know, we can't have two big luminaries. So Hashem said, okay, good, let's make yourself small. Okay. So, what does that mean? And we know in the future, only during Mashiach, will the moon be able to illuminate like the sun. So what does this strange story mean? So the moon in Hasidic represents a divine energy that's outside of the realm of holiness that goes into the world of darkness and unholiness. And that's to illuminate the dark. It's a lot of fun being the sun. Right? Because the sun shines. And when the sun's out, it's day. And you're able to help the world, the healthy part of the world. But where's the sick part of the world? In the dark. And Hashem now, the moon says, we can't have two leaders. And you're right. But I'm even going to give you a more important job. You're going to work in the dark. Right? And, uh, and that's what the Jews are. That we're like the moon. Because we have to illuminate the darkness. So, therefore, just like the moon is not, you might think get rejected. Oh, the moon, you're not good. You can't, you can't be there in the daylight. That's right. But there's certain things you can do in the day, but you can't do anything at night. How can you do something at night? You have to have the moon. And the moon is definitely deficient compared to the sun. Because it was, it was, in whatever the meaning is, as, as powerful as the sun. God gave it a blemish. Now, how the blemish happened, there's a whole discussion. It could be the orbital path was changed. Maybe it was physically, whatever it was, but it had a blemish. And we see the moon always has blemishes. Very rarely you see a full moon. It's a blemished moon. But what can the blemished moon do that the sun can never do? Provide light at night. Now, it's not as powerful as the sun, but it can get a lot more accomplished and it can take care of the darkness. And this is, now, if you look at the Mei Shiloach, let's just look at a little bit of a, a little bit, I know there's a lot over there. I just want to bring just a couple salient uh, things. First of all, he, he talks about, and this was a class I gave many years ago. He says, the whole Parsha deals with people who have complaints. There's all kinds of complaints we can have in life. And if you go through the, all the laws with the Kohanim, 
he discusses five major complaints. That was a whole great class. Listen to it. Go back to 19, I don't remember, two, 2000 and something. It, that's called the holidays deal with your uh, five um, whatever things that bother you, whatever. I don't remember the exact wording. But let's think about it. What is one of the biggest complaints a person could have is a blemish. Now think about it. Why did God make me different? Why did God make me different? And that, you know, and, and when you have that, you really are just, you don't want to even be a Jew sometimes. You say, I'm already, like, what kind of tease is this? If I was Yisrael, doesn't matter if I have a blemish. But I'm already born to a father who's a Kohen. And look at the great potential I had. And now because of this silly uh, uh, accident while playing hockey, where they poked one of my eyes out, I couldn't be gone anymore. My whole life is ruined. Right? And that's, that's, that's a real issue. So, what's the answer to that? So, he mentions how the holidays are meant to uh, not answer the questions, but let you get past the questions. That was the Meishi Loach. He says, well, you have, you have blemishes. Guess what? So did the Jewish people have them before Shavuos. But on Shavuos, everybody got healed. So, guess what? You may not know why you got it, but you see that you know, blemishes eventually can get healed in one form or another. Does that answer the question why I got it? No. But still, it lets you get beyond it. That was a different piece. But now we're taking it a step further, and he explains it in, in other pieces, where he's saying, just because you have a blemish, who says there's anything wrong with that? And what's the biggest proof that there's nothing wrong with it? It's because he's a coin, and he could eat sacred food. If you were really not fit to be a coin, I couldn't let you eat the sacred food. Because what's the reason for eating the sacred food? Because that sacred food continues to do the service that you're meant to do. Why does a coin get to eat kachim and truma and I can't? Because he has special work to do. He has special work to do. And, he, and therefore he has to eat the holiest of foods to ingest that, to continue his, his trajectory of holiness. And then he'll, he'll make the food holy just by eating it because he's doing holy things. So if you're a real loser, Mr. Cohen, then how come you get to eat truma? How come you get to eat kachim? That means inside of you, you're no less holy than another Cohen. But I gave you a harder job. A different job, but no, a harder job. It's easier to be Macarver guy who walks into the shul than to the guy who's not in the shul. Now let's figure, after all, how many weeks in a year did a coin work? In the one, temple, one, two one, weeks. One. Now they studied a lot so when it was those two weeks, they'd really do a good job. So this guy doesn't have to spend so much time worrying how to do the avoda. He has to be an expert in dealing with people's emotional problems. And most problems that people have in life with their avoda Hashem is because there is some blemish in their life, maybe not such a discernible blemish. Freud would say how you were raised. And there's so many, so many reasons, so many blemishes that are not so easily detected. But the guy with a real blemish and knows what it means to be treated differently, he can be very sensitive to any kind of blemishes that people have to live with. Okay. And therefore, the, the fact 
it, it's not the Torah saying there's something inherently wrong with the person. You're a coin, there's something wrong with you. Because if there's something wrong with you, you could not eat the special food. And therefore, there's something right with you. But you got to focus on what Hashem wants you to do. And it's not this. And as much as you want this, Hashem is saying no. And if, when the answer is no, then obviously you have to look somewhere else. And usually it's not as prestigious and as prominent as definitely a coin in the base of Migdash. The accoutrements look so much better. You need to wear special clothing. A regular coin is not going to wear special clothing. You get to be, you know, rub elbows with the significant holy people, while the regular coin is, quote unquote, the loser. <laughs> but that's, the, so that's the challenge. Shavuos teaches us that, you know, and truthfully, the fact that the Jews, why are Jews more um, sympathetic and empathetic to other people? Because we know what it meant to be slaves. Had we not had that slavery, we would never have that built-in empathy for other people. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the coin is given something that a regular coin does not have that ability. And you got to realize that's even a bigger job. It's not a big job to just uh, have a great service in the shul for people who want to go to the service. Mm-hmm. It's to bring them close to Hashem who don't want that service. The one who has that defect is able to help the others with that defect. And then finally... Let's see what the base Yaakov says in source. I think you have it as number eight. Seven. Not eight? The eight short eight. one, the short one. Yeah. Eight. yeah, eight and nine. At the end of this whole discussion with the Kohanim, it says, You shall not desecrate my holy name. So it says the Ishbitzer's son, it's the, I only have the Hebrew, but the point is in English. Iker Chil Hashem. What's the main Chil Hashem? We talk about Chil Hashem a lot. There's all kinds of forms of Chil Hashem. A Jew doing something not proper in public is a Chil Hashem. But what's the essence of Chil Hashem? Where do you get to the core of Chil Hashem? He says, It's when a person has given up on himself. He despairs on himself. He says, God forbid, God's hand is too short to save me. And therefore the Torah first says, And I shall be sanctified amongst the Jewish people. What does that mean? That God should be found explicitly in front of the eyes of the Jewish people. And that's why it says, Ani Hashem Mikadishem, I Hashem made you holy. And the post continues, and who took you out of Mitzrayim? Why is it that they took you out of Mitzrayim? Because when Hashem took the Jews out of Mitzrayim, there appeared to be no Kedusha there. <laughs> the last people Hashem could save were the Jews of Mitzrayim. Because they didn't know that Hashem's essence was inside of them. And therefore, Hashem is saying, you have to realize the greatest Chil Hashem is when you don't believe Hashem can help you. The greatest Chil Hashem is you say, Hashem made me a cripple and therefore my life is finished. Because Chil Hashem means there's a new sense that this is a place where there is no God. And obviously a person who has a disability's first thought would be, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, I'm one of his mistakes. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest Chil Hashem. That's why and you got to realize, no, 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 the fact that you are having all this trouble 
is the potential for the biggest Kiddush Hashem. And if you give up hope on yourself, then that's a tremendous Chilul Hashem. So let's just give one example of this idea. So where, so again, so where is God's perfection? The answer is God's perfection is in wherever he puts you. And that's not going to be your initial reaction. So uh, there's a famous story that was said. There's an organization in Brooklyn called Hush. It's for disabled children. And uh, some children are there their entire lives. Others are mainstreamed into conventional schools. So it was at a Hush fundraising dinner. The father of one of the children in school gave a speech. And first he talks about how great the school is, how great the staff is. And then the father kind of got everyone's attention and he cried out, where is the perfection in my son Shia? He wants to say everything in God's world is perfect. So where's, right? everything is done with perfection, but my child can't understand things as other children do. My child can't remember facts and figures like other people can. Where is God's perfection? And the crowd is shocked. So he says, I believe that when God brings a child like this into the world, the perfection that he seeks is in the way people react to this child. And that's important for for parents who who have to raise such a child. And there could be all kinds of, there's so many stories of parents getting divorced, they can't take it, the father runs away, whatever. And it's, it's hard, it's easy for us to say, but they don't realize the great opportunity. So he said a specific story. It was one afternoon, Shai and his father were walking by the park where some boys Shia knew, healthy boys, were playing baseball. So Shia turns to his father as they're walking, he says, you think the boys will let me play? So Shia's father knew that his son was not at all athletic He was underdeveloped both cognitively and physically. Most boys will not want them on the team. So Shia's father understood uh, that if it was, they let the kid play, it's not because of his skill, but they had like Rachmanus on it. So the father goes to one of the boys in the field and asks if Shia could play. And the boy looks around and he doesn't know what to do. And so his friends don't say anything. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. So the guy said, you know what? We're losing by six runs, and it's in the eighth inning. I guess he could be in our team, and we'll let him bat in the ninth inning because we're losing anyway. I remember kids at that age really want to win, in case you forgot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if women can understand as much as guys. But, don't tell me But no, man, you know, th- that's big. When you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, winning is the whole thing. And, yeah. if, you know, you scream and yell. It's, it's important to win. But okay, we're six runs down. It's the eighth inning. So anyway, in the bot, so they let Shia he'd get to play. So in the bot, and then they'll put him in left field, like way, way out, so he doesn't have to ever get a ball. Like, fine. So in the bottom of the eighth inning, Shia's team scores a few runs, but was still down by three. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shia's team scores again. And now with two outs and the bases loaded, the potential winning runs on base, it's now Shia's turn to bat. Were they going to let Shia bat, which means for sure they're going to lose, or are they going to not give it to him? Now remember, it's very important for kids. You got to, as an adult, you say, of course, let him play. 
But when you're a 12-year-old kid, <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't want to lose. So surprisingly, Shia was given the bat. Right. Everyone knows, knows this is not going to happen because he doesn't even know how to hold the bat properly, let alone hit it. Anyway, Shai comes up to the plate. The pitcher moves in a few steps to lob the ball softly to Shia to at least maybe to touch it. The first pitch comes and Shai, like, he doesn't even know what to do with the bat. He's just swinging. It's not even close. Forget it. So one of Shia's teammates comes up to Shia together. He holds the bat, the bat with Shia. And he's waiting for the next pitch. The pitcher took a few steps in again. The pitch came in. And the guy helps it. And he hits a little ground ball to the pitcher. Pitcher takes the ball. He's an easy out. Pitcher takes the ball and goes. <laughs> throws it on a high trajectory over the first baseman's head. And everyone's saying, Shia, run! Run, Shia! It's almost like uh, the other, uh, uh, what was the Goyish movie? Run, oh, uh, uh, whatever. Run, Forrest, run. So saying, run, Shia, run. So the ball goes into the right field, and the right fielder takes the ball, and he throws it over the second baseman's head. And Shia runs and say, run. And Shia doesn't know which direction to run. So the t- players on the other team say, so Shia, run this way. Go to second base, not to the outfield. And then they throw, they, they, they make up errors here, errors there, errors everywhere, and Shia crosses home plate, and they win the game, wow. and they carry Shia on their shoulders. All 18 boys lifted him on their shoulder, and the father at the end of the speech, he said that day, those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. So that's, that's the message. So I think... Uh, in, in life, there's a lot of things that we want in our spiritual development. And we w- w- are looking for, if it's a man in learning in Torah, if it's a woman in her feeling of dveikus to Hashem. And a lot of us feel that we have certain handicaps. And you kind of say, Hashem never really created me to be able to get the things that I really want to do in life. So you got to realize that, that maybe that's not what Hashem wants you to do in life. And what everybody else thinks is important is not important for you. It's not your perfection. And and that's why this Parsha... Oh, oh, wait. I'm almost going to forget something. Wait. So now, what's that last story got to do with anything? The answer is that fellow is is the epitome of making the mistake. Look what could happen to a person who figures that my service on a Yiddishkeit can only be if I have a portion in the tribe of Dan. He was raised thinking he was a regular Jewish fellow. All of a sudden, he finds out he has blemishes of blemishes of blemishes. His, his father was not his father. His father is an Egyptian. And not only that, but now he loses all financial benefits. He lo- loses all legal benefits. And at that point, they didn't know that they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. They thought they're going to Israel very shortly. And as a, as, as, a, as a person, not with any tribal affiliation, the guy says, I have no hope. And we're told that he also was a Gilgal of Cain. And what was Cain's major problem? That he was a loser. God did not accept his corpse. Now, Cain should have said, God didn't accept my Corbin. 
doesn't mean my avoda can't be pleasing somewhere else. So that would have to transmigrate into different people, and one of them was this fellow. Now, what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to say, okay, I guess if I'm, not, I'm a Jew, I am a Jew, I'm a legal Jew, a Jew without any land. Wow, what a unique opportunity to show that I love Hashem without having all the other recruitments that every other Jew has. What a great opportunity I could have. But instead, he said, well, I'm not like everybody else. And that could bring you to the point, we can curse out God. And there were that story has everything to do with this week's Parsha. Because if anybody had what to complain about, it was him. But he didn't understand the message at the beginning of the Parsha. The Kohen without a blemish, with a blemish, doesn't serve. It doesn't mean Hashem doesn't want him. It doesn't mean he can't be perfect. Perfect in another way that's a unique way that he'll have to figure out. And that fellow who was under these circumstances, and if you don't figure out those solutions, what will happen? You will curse God. You'll go off the derech. And that's why it's so important. And we, we always kind of feel you have to fit into this box to be a good Jew. But Hashem is saying that's totally not necessary. And you can, everybody can find their place with Hashem. And B'dafka where Hashem puts you, that's where you're going to reach your perfect avoda. Okay, Shkoya, thank you all. Any other questions? We're good. Well, they, they are the answers to these questions. That's a whole other class. Just like Shvuas was the answer for those with disabilities to show you that those disabilities can be turned into, can, can go away. That's part of the answer, but that's a whole other class. Okay, thank you all for coming. And